Well, we're continuing to look into the idea of how do we become the church that Jesus wanted us to be. Not maybe the church that we've kind of made up, to, but the church that the Bible says that, that is the kind of church that we need to be. And we've been focusing a lot of that idea around Acts 2, 42, which was the basis of what the church focused on at the very beginning when it was led by the Holy Spirit and the apostles. And Acts 2.42 says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And when you look at that word devoted, when you break it down and look at where it comes from and the Greek and all that and how it's used in that passage in the New Testament, the, the word devoted means that it, you're strong towards it. It, it. When you really break it down, it, it's super pro-endurance. Um, and so when it came to Acts 2.42, they had super pro-endurance towards the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And that was what made the church the church. And if we're not devoted to those things, if I'm not devoted to those things, and you're not devoted to those things, and you're not devoted to those things, and you're not devoted to those things, if we are not devoted to those things altogether, then we can't be the church. In Revelation, in, in Jesus' letters to the churches, Pastor John talked about that a few weeks ago. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you tested those who claimed to be the apostles but weren't, that you have found them false. You persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand there represents the church. Jesus says, look, you church, you in Ephesus, you work really hard. That's good. You persevere through hard things. You don't tolerate wickedness. You test the people who are teaching you, and if, you don't, if they're false teachers, you don't listen. You've suffered. You persevered through persecution. You haven't grown weary. I mean, all of those things put together, it sounds like a pretty good church. But Jesus is saying, look, you did all that great church stuff, but you've forgotten the love for me that you had at first. You're not devoted to me anymore. And he says, if you're not devoted to me anymore, if you don't love me like that, he said, you won't be a church anymore. I'll remove the lampstand from you. You still be a group that gets together, 
just kind of getting together, but, but my spirit won't be there. The church won't be there. The bride of Christ part won't be there. And in my, in my personal devotion time, I've been reading through Jeremiah and Lamentations. And it, in Jeremiah, it's crazy. For over 50 chapters, he's warning the Israelites again and again and again. You've got to turn from your ways. You've got to change. You've made all these other things more important than me. If you don't change, I'll take everything from you. You'll die by the sword. You'll starve. Everything you have will be burned up. Your children will starve and die in the streets. And chapter after chapter after chapter, he's warning them, you have to change. But in Jeremiah 4, 30, He's saying, what are you doing? You who've been plundered, you've plundered, you just don't know it yet. What are you doing, you have been plundered? You dress up in beautiful clothing and you put on gold jewelry. Why do you brighten your eyes with mascara? And I just read that and I think, it sounds like people getting ready for church. He says, your primping will do you no good. The allies who were your lovers despise you and seek to kill you. That all those people and nations that you put your hope in, you're you're getting all dressed up and looking pretty, but all these things that you put your hope in, they're coming to destroy you. Babylon's coming to destroy you. And God keeps warning them to change, to change, to change, to come back to your love of me. Or I will take everything from you. And they keep putting on their fancy clothes and their mascara and their jewelry like nothing's going to happen. He says, all those things you allied yourself with, they're going to be the cause of your destruction. I wonder if you look around your life and where you spend your time and your passion and your money, what have you allied yourself with? He's saying you've allied yourself with all these things and then lamentations come and in lamentations chapter one and verse two, he says among all of her lovers, he's talking about Israel, there's no one left to comfort her. All of her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. All of those things that you put all your hope in is not there to comfort you now. In Lamentations 2, in verse 3 and 4, he says, all the strength of Israel vanishes beneath God's fierce anger. Look at how God is reacting to these people that he's warned over and over again. You have to change. Your, your focus is not on me. You have to do something different. Look at what, how God is reacting. This isn't the other countries reacting this way. This is God reacting this way. All the strength of Israel vanishes beneath his fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire. He bends his bow against his people as though he were their enemy. His strength is used against them to kill their finest youth. His fury is poured out like a fire on beautiful Jerusalem. The Bible says that God will not be mocked. 
the Bible says that God keeps his promises. If God says something's going to happen, then it's going to happen. All through Jeremiah, he's saying, you've got to change. If you don't change, this will happen. And they didn't change. And it happened. Jesus says, you have to go back to your first love. You're doing all this great churchy stuff, but if you don't go back to your first love, I'm going to take the church away from you. Building might still be there. The group of people might still be there. But the effectiveness of the church, the the real bride of Christ won't be there. And we've seen it. We are seeing it all around the country today. All of these churches that are, the building's still there and Maybe some of the people are still there. Eight people, 10 people, 15 people. But, but the church isn't there. There's no effectiveness there anymore. They're not seeing people saved anymore. They're not reaching out into their community anymore. It's just a box they check off. So how, how do we live these devoted lives? What, what does that look like? What would the Bible say to you about maybe how to begin living that life out? And so today I'm going to read a longer passage of Scripture because, again, we're really trying to get back to the focal point of the church. And a big part of that is the apostles' teaching. And I really feel like it makes more sense to hear the apostles' teaching more than it does to hear just some guy from East Liverpool, Ohio. So so we're going to spend some time in the apostles' teaching, if you have your Bibles. And I'm going to read through this. By the way, if you'd like to help uh, with reading scripture passages, we're going to make that available to you pretty soon. And if you want to sign up for that, you can sign up on the information desk on the paper that says, I can read. Um, it's, it's not just a sign up for like literacy, but if you are literate, then you have the skills, um, and we'd love to have you help read. So I'm going to be reading, though, from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and following. Um, but as I read this, I'm going to try to read it a little bit slower. And as I read it, um, even right now, just maybe begin in your heart to ask God to show you what you need to hear today. Just God, you know... What, what do I need to hear from your living and active word? So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the power or through the laying on of hands. For the Spirit of God 
does not make us timid. That sounds like last week. But gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And that's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the presence of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermonages, I think. But, but these people, even these two people who were part of the church, who were supposed to be devoted and therefore am part of the fellowship building them up, weren't devoted anymore. They left him. But he says, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Oniferous because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Paul goes on and says this, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ. You, you notice how often he talks about suffering because you're a Christian? He talks about it all the time. As you're reading through the letters to the church book, you'll, you'll get to the, a chapter where he talks a lot about that. But how often through the New Testament, there's just an assumption that if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer for it, that you're going to be persecuted, that it's going to cost you something. And yet how often do Christians in America face any kind of suffering for our faith? How often does it cost us something? He says in chapter two, verse four, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. 
You know, when I think of devotion, when I think of super pro endurance, you know, one of the things I, I would think of is a soldier, is, you know, a guy going through SEAL training or, or basic training where you need super pro endurance. If you're a devoted follower of Jesus, he, he says that a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. But how often do we concern ourselves with things that someone who's fully devoted to Jesus doesn't need to be concerned with? Think of somebody who's a soldier. Think of, of what they do and become through basic training and as they're on missions. They're focused on the mission. They're focused on what they have to do. All the civilian things, they lay all that aside because they're soldiers now. And he's saying, if you're a soldier of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you don't get involved in civilian affairs. And yet, so often, we become involved with lots of things that the world has going on. I went to a basketball game last night. And, and that's fine. I'm not saying going to high school basketball games wrong. But on the other hand, I'm thinking if... I'm a soldier stationed in Afghanistan or in basic training somewhere. I'm not going to a whole lot of basketball games because I'm focused on what I have to do. I don't have a whole lot of choices in where, where I get to go and where I get to spend my time and what I get to do for fun. It says a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. I just think of the commitment they have to make. And think, think about how big that commitment is that a soldier has to make. And then realize that the commitment a Christian has to make to follow Christ is higher. The commitment that when you say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, it's a much higher commitment, much higher calling than it is to be a soldier. It should demand more of us. And, and I'm not just talking about sin. I'm not just saying like we have to, oh, we have to stay away from sinful stuff. I'm saying all of the things that distract us from our devotion to Jesus. Those are civilian affairs. When I think of super pro endurance, I think of like Gatorade and Wheaties. I think of Michael Jordan and I think of Olympic athletes and I think of those people that are dedicated to a sport. Does your dedication to Jesus look like a pro or a college athlete? Does your dedication to Jesus look like an Olympic athlete that wakes up at four in the morning so that they can go and 
do that thing that they're devoted to for a few hours before they have to get, get breakfast and then go to work or go to school, do that for a few hours so they can get out and go back to doing what it is they're devoted to. And they do that till dinner and then they do dinner and then they rest a little bit and then they do it a little bit more. And then they wake up and they sleep a few hours and they do it again. And Paul says, they, they do it to win a crown that won't last. They, they do it to win a gold medal that sooner or later ends up on pawn stars or in a pawn shop somewhere that gets passed down that, that really means nothing. But he says, we do it to, to gain a crown that will last. That all of that time, you know, sometimes I watch the Olympics and I think these poor people have wasted their life. They're, they're doing so much. Like, you know, you hear their stories. They wake up at three in the morning so they can go work out from four o'clock to seven o'clock so that they can go to school and then they get out of school and then they go back to the gym or whatever and they work from, and, they, and they're, you know, training from three o'clock to seven o'clock when they go to, and they get a little bit dinner and then they you know, do a little bit of exercise and then nine o'clock they're going to bed because they have to be up at three. And they just do this for years and years and years and years. And they do it to win a crown and a gold medal that isn't gonna last. Are, are we super pro endurance devoted to God's word and teaching and prayer and fellowship with one another? To, to that level. I mean, shoot, does your devotion to Jesus look like your devotion to your kid's sport? Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 2 reflect on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you insight to all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Being chained like a criminal sounds like super pro-endurance. But God's word, he says, is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything Super pro endurance. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value. It only ruins those who listen. Facebook. <laughs> I'll say that again. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value, and it only ruins those who listen. 
There's been a couple times this week I thought, I'd just type that on there and just leave it and see what happens. But I didn't because there's no use in quarreling about words. But let me, let me just say this and remind you all of this, that you know a lot of times we think Facebook is a kid thing, but most teenagers don't care about Facebook. And I just saw a whole group of teenagers go, uh-huh. Yeah, he's all right. I don't care. Facebook is a grown-up thing. Like, a, a, it's cool if you're, like, in your 30s and up. So I'm not saying that and going, and kids, pay attention to this. I'm saying, and grown-ups, pay attention to this. Because we're not good at it, it seems. says, warn them before God, that's pretty intense, against quarreling about words. It's of no value and it only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Here's another good one. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. That goes for social media, that goes for how many conversations you have throughout the week. Avoid godless chatter because it, those who indulge in it will only become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. And he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. These guys, uh, at least um, Hymenaeus, Paul kicks out of, out of the church completely because he's spreading all this false doctrine. That is how important the word of God was to them. That's how the extent they were devoted to it. That if you were preaching something other than the word of God, you couldn't be a part of that church. In verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for some special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter, from wickedness, will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee from the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that sound anything like the culture we're living in today? The culture that Paul says, watch out, those are the last days. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Which to me sounds an awful lot like a church that's had its lampstand removed. They're still meeting in a building, still singing the songs, still reading the Bible, some, maybe a little bit, doing all the motions, checking the box, but there's no power in it anymore. He says, have nothing to do with such people. They're the kind that worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and John priests opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think about that for a second. I'll say that again, because we forget that. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Who's speaking into your life right now? But he says in verse 5, but you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Are you a good soldier? Are you a lover of yourself? How often do you experience some kind of suffering for your faith? Do you have a form of godliness but deny its power? That's what Jesus was saying to the church in Ephesus. You're working for me. You're persevering for me. You're doing some of the stuff I told you to do. You look like the church. You have a form of godliness, but there's no power there. You look like the church, but you're not the church. Would God say to us, I I see what you're doing. You're working hard. You're showing up. You're persevering. You do some of the stuff I say to do. You're doing a good job of fooling the people around you, but you're not fooling me. I hope that's not what Jesus would say. But in Luke chapter 14, in verses 25 to 33, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, Jesus did say, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you sit down first and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation, aren't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying that person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with his 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Super pro endurance, real true devotion there's a cost. And you have to sit down and decide, am I going to pay it? Is is Jesus, is God having a relationship with him? Is it worth the cost? Am I willing to pay that cost? 
Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Let me ask real quick before we move on to what he said. How much does the world around you like you? He says, if you belong to the world, the world would love you. Like its own. How much does the world around you like you? He says, as it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. The world doesn't hate you a little bit. Something might be wrong. You might have to maybe just ask God about that. Why does, every, why does the whole world think my life's just fine? Because if you've been chosen out of the world by Jesus, the world should look at your life and go, they're kind of wasting their life. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 to 9. He says, but whatever were gains to me, whatever the world looked at and go, wow, he has whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That everything I get, all those crowns, uh, all the things, all the accolades that the world give me, they're all lost because I get to know, I get to have a relationship, I get to be loved by Jesus, and that's enough. Everything else is is, is a loss. I consider them garbage, he says, that I may gain Christ. In Matthew 24, in verse 12, in all of Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the last days. You know, the last days when Paul said people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, sadness, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of God, uh, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those, watch out. That'll be like that in the last days. And we said, oh yeah, that, might, that sounds familiar. When Jesus is talking about the last days, he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That they'll lose their first love. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He goes on in in chapter 24 and says this. He tells a story to just put it into perspective for us in the last days. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of the servant will 
come home on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him with a, in a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've been talking about what it looks like to be the bride of Christ. It looks like a good soldier that doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. It looks like someone who loves Jesus deeply, so much so that they devote all of their life to him. So that when those people come together, you and you and you and you, and when each of us who have devoted all of our lives to Jesus come together, we form this thing called the church where people are devoted in their personal lives become this body who are devoted together. Being the church, becoming the bride, looks like this, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to move into a time of prayer We've read a lot of scripture today, um, and I want to give us some real time to respond and just spend some time with God on that. Um, And so, Jason, if I could get you to uh, turn the lights off. Um, We're going to, like I said, we're going to spend some time in prayer, uh, praying through some of this, and... um, I'd invite you, if you'd like, to come and kneel at the altar to pray with, with me. Um, if, if you don't want to do that, if, if you could just spin around and kneel down on the floor and, and pray at your chair. Um, if you can't kneel, that's fine, too. You just pray. But uh, right now, just maybe begin to get yourself into a position uh, to remind yourself that you're before a holy God, um, and, and we're going to spend some time praying together.